You're listening to the On the DL podcast. This is the official podcast of the Temple ISD Digital Learning Department. I'm your host, John Woodward, and this is episode 13 of season three, featuring a conversation with Brian Aspinall. Who's Brian Aspinall? Well, he's an educator, best-selling author, and considered one of the brightest STEM innovators in education. He continues to top the charts in STEM education books with his first book, Code Breaker, which focuses on rethinking assessment and evaluation. He was awarded Canada's Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence for his work with coding and computational thinking. Brian's enthusiasm, thoughtful leadership, and approach to building capacity within STEM education has made him a sought-after speaker across the globe. So, let's go on the DL with Brian Espinall. I am on the DL here with Brian Aspinall, and I'm saying that correctly, right? That's it. Yep. Well, and Brian, I've got to tell you, you're our, you're my first international guest. Amazing. Well, Amazing. hello from Canada. <laughs> hello from from Canada. You know uh, that narrows it down, right? Canada. Yeah, hey, that, I said hey. Yay. So I expect to hear a lot of A's and a lot of Canadian isms, uh, and I'll throw in some, uh, some Texan stuff in the way, and then we'll just, we'll just make all the stereotypes alive yeah, and well. well. Well, we're at it then. I apologize for Justin Bieber and you're welcome for Ryan Reynolds. They're both <laughs> We'll exchange and do our apologies later on, on people yeah. from our country. <laughs> But no, no, I certainly, I know you're a busy man uh, and I appreciate you being here, but tell me a little bit about those, especially those who may not know Brian Aspinall, a little about your background, yourself and, and what it is you're currently doing. What's your mission right now? Yeah, totally. So this is my 16th year in education. Um, because of a high school teacher, I was a self-taught coder in the 90s. I ended up building a website for my high school very first uh, website my high school ever had. That was sort of my claim to fame in the, in the late 90s. And as a result of that school project, uh, I studied computer science. So computer science is my undergrad. And when I graduated there, early 2000s, right after the Y2K <laughs> debacle, it was one of those, do I head to Toronto? I don't live about four hours away from Toronto. So at the time, it was, do I head to Toronto and sort of chase the dot-com dream or do I go back to the faculty of ed? My mom was a teacher. She taught ESL. My grandfather was also a teacher. So uh, I always I always understood, you know, the the workload, but also the summers off and, the, you know, the other perks that come along with it, too. So I decided I wasn't risky enough to to head to the big cities. You know, you can't the cost of living in Toronto versus where I am is is night and day. So I stayed and I always thought I would be a high school computer science teacher. And where I'm from in the province of Ontario, we have an elementary union and a secondary union and our element and, and on the public side, the public education side. So we have a K to eight union and we have a nine to 12 union. And I got scooped up on the elementary side. And at the time, 16 years ago, <laughs> believe it or not, it was hard to get a teaching job back then and nothing like That's it. True. is. Apparently. Yeah, it was hard to get a teaching job. Uh, and it was all in in who you knew, not really what you knew, so to speak. And I thought, okay, well, here I'm a male in elementary with a computer science math background who also wants to coach some sports. So I guess elementary is where I'm going to be. 
and I stayed because if you jumped to to secondary, you would lose you, you lose your seniority. You don't lose your uh, your your pay scale seniority, but you lose your staffing seniority. And about finally landing a permanent job, and then to to go and pursue being a, a, an occasional what we call supply teacher again or substitute teacher again at high school, I stayed. Uh, and, and, and I found my niche in seventh grade and eighth grade just made most sense to my administrator to put Brian, the only male in the elementary school at the end with the 13 year olds, <laughs> 14 year olds. And uh, the standardized testing happens here in grade six in, in our province. And so okay. being able to have that middle school, those middle school grades, they kind of leave you alone, right? You've got grade seven and eight. You keep them out of the office. You keep them happy and don't really care what you do with them, right? Get them ready for high school right. and the rest is history. So uh, as a result of that, we teach to our strengths. Computer science is something. Coding is something I've always done. So this is my 16th year of integrating computer science into elementary. And admittedly, around 2007, 8, 9, you know, the hour of code tidal wave comes and I grabbed my surfboard and I decided to hop on. I was asked by my province here in Ontario to actually lead a project for the Ministry of Education. So I ended up working for the province. Um, and as a result of that, I, I started doing consulting work for Microsoft Canada. Um, and as a result of that, one of the faculties of ed reached out and said, we have a brand new graduate school program. Um, it's the second, it's the first year cohort. Nobody's done it. Nobody's taken it before. And as a result, we don't actually have anybody qualified to teach it. Would you be interested in taking it? It's a one year online grad program. Get your master's. It's master's of math in professional education, but there's an entire course on computational thinking. And we'd like for you to teach that course. So fast forward to today, um, Codebreaker EDU was formed as a result of the consulting opportunities that were coming um, as a result of my passion project, that is to expose as many kids to computer science as possible, because like broccoli, they don't know if they like it until they try it. And if we don't expose coding to our five-year-olds, you know, we, we're doing them a disservice. So uh, I resigned from my school district about four and a half years ago to do the Codebreaker Consulting. And I still teach higher ed at uh, this semester, two different faculties of education here. The course is called wow. the Integration of Information and Computer Technology. Admittedly, they're online courses and they're tech courses, so you'd think they'd be bursting at the seams, but we're kind of sick of remote learning. So enrollment's down right now. That's okay. I kind of need a break as well. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> in a nutshell, we do professional development services across the globe, uh, keynote speaking, and then I, I still teach the faculty of ed. That was the extremely long-winded version of the Coles notes. I apologize for that. <laughs> oh, you do get around because I think the first uh, yeah, you've been in Alaska this year. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, funny uh, story there. Funny story there. On March 12th, 2020, the day the world stopped, that was the day the NBA shut down. I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan with Joe Sanfilippo. And we were both doing a keynote at the McCall Conference, the Michigan Association of Computer Users and Learning. And the advisor or the the board, uh, the, the board of the committee said, you need to go home. Like the whole world just shut down and you're Canadian and you need to get across the border because they're talking about closing the border. So I like the kid that Joe Sanfilippo and I sort of shut down the world. But ironically enough, wouldn't you know, he and I were the keynote speakers in Alaska. Yes. It came full 
circle. And I made a joke to them. I said, here we go again. 2020, part two, 2022. Uh, but it went off without a hitch. And uh, it was great. It was a great experience, too. I was like, I joked. I was the hype man. He was the he was the closer <laughs> that made everybody cry. I was the hype man that made everybody dance at the beginning of the event. But it was great. We had a great time. Yeah, I had a chance to to interview him at the uh, TCEA, which is our our big conference and one of the biggest in the country uh, this yeah. last year. And uh, yeah, he's nothing. He's not short on energy. That's for sure. Oh my goodness, it was so fast. His keynote was hilarious, but you almost want to record it and slow it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I got I enjoyed watching your uh, your video. Uh, footage of your travails and 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 seeing the moose it walk in the streets you know at, at different times of day and and uh so you uh you um chronicled your journey quite well on that trip yeah. made me maybe want to be there <laughs> i you know i appreciate that youtube has uh youtube is a creative outlet for me it's a hobby for me and i can shamelessly plug my youtube channel here yeah please what I do appreciate about what I do on YouTube is I, I feel like I'm still modeling. I'm still modeling lifelong learning. Uh, my YouTube channel isn't necessarily just about education, but it's about everything that I, I kind of do. And I use it to, to, to show the, the educators in my faculty courses that, you know, this is my portfolio of learning. And at some point I can actually monetize it if I choose to do so because it's on YouTube. And I use that, that coupled with the coding narrative, because when kids learn to code, it never works the first time through. And that challenges us to redefine what it means to fail at school. So I use yeah. my YouTube channel and, you know, the principles of computer science to push back on grades and push back on the grading narrative that we're so heavily focused on. Trying to get those teachers in my courses that are new to the profession to already start thinking about, you know, feedback over numbers and all those other pieces. Uh. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. man well getting getting into kind of your wheelhouse which is which is stem and coding um what does that mean to you and i, I say that from a, a personal standpoint because it's not hard to to watch either your 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 ted talks or or snippets of what you do that you've got a true passion for what you're doing um and, you know, so talk to me a little bit about what you see as the value of those two subjects and how there really are, are the difference makers for students and for teachers, for that matter. Yes, uh, I think that the STEM world provides uh, a bit of equity. It provides a heck of a lot of opportunity I come from a town of 2,000 people. There was 12 people in my grade 12 graduating class when I graduated high school. Uh, I've since moved back to the community in, in which I'm from, and I'm actually very close with the high school teacher that let me build that first website in the 90s. Um, and so it's become a passion for me that it's, it again, is a matter of exposure. It's a matter of we don't teach all kids phys ed thinking they're going to be athletes. We don't teach all kids writing thinking they're going to be authors. I don't think every kid's going to go out there and be a computer scientist, but maybe they're going to find their passions as a result of that journey. Maybe they're going to be inspired by how passionate I am about it. I want our young people to recognize that 
just because you're from a small town doesn't mean you don't stand a chance. Um, I think that as is everything in the world, there's a pendulum swing. And I think we're heading back to a hardware era. And what I mean is like in the 90s, we saw hardware computing was a thing. And then in the 2000s, again, it almost went software side with the Microsoft, you know, office. Mm -hmm. The App Store was born. Well, now we're looking at IoT, Internet of Things. And so I think we're heading that the pendulum is, is swinging back. And I do believe the, you know, the Ubers and the Airbnb app era generation is going to move to the hardware side. Let's pick on let's pick on the restaurant industry because we know robots could have been working at McDonald's forever already, but we didn't want to take jobs from people. Well, coming out of a pandemic, people don't want those jobs anymore. So now is the time for us to see artificial intelligence, especially in the restaurant industry. Now, with regards to exposing kids to this, because of Internet of Things and IoT, I think our next best invention, whether it be software, hardware, whatever, is probably going to be some kind of Internet of Thing gadget. And, and our young people are going to be the ones that create it to solve authentic problems either in their own world or, you know, in their community. Um and then again, we'll I think we'll see the software end again coming out the other side. Somebody is going to create some kind of hardware that everybody is going to want. And then as a result, it's going to open up a whole new medium, you know, a whole new app store, app store, if you will. So number one, I'm incredibly passionate about it because I know what it's done for me. But I also have seen what it has done for a lot of students in my classroom. And I don't ever want to put kids in a box. But let's say student A is identified gifted and needs extra challenges in my class. STEM is going to STEM is going to provide that. And let's say now I have student B who might come with an IEP and, and identified with some learning disabilities. Well, STEM is going to provide some opportunities for success. In my mind, it's this sandbox of learning where the differentiation lends itself naturally. I find the deeper I go with project-based learning, particularly with STEM, the less time I'm standing at the photocopy machine. And in fact, the more time I find myself standing at the Keurig machine <laughs> as my <laughs> students are busy doing you know, their own passion projects that are rooted in both physical computing as well as coding and as well as arts and steam and all the other pieces that are involved with that. But I do believe, not that you asked, <laughs> a big okay. barrier to this approach is the, is the grading narrative. We continue to preach taking risks and embracing failure when we predominantly work and live in a system in which failure is punished. And that gets worse exactly as we go right. up through the grades. That gets worse as we go up through the grades. So how do you encourage an 11th grade student in their own learning when all they're focused on is the next? Because we've been time and time again in school, we, we use school as a vehicle to teach them to go to more school and to do more school. And so if post-secondary education is my goal, I'm not taking a risk in, in grade 11 because I know what I need to do to get to the next the next place. We recently did a survey with our student body uh, about engagement, and we found that it was a, a backward checkmark correlation. And we found that students in kindergarten loved to come to school. I'm going to do it, try and do a mm -hmm. mirror image. How do I do this? This way. Students in kindergarten love I'm following you. And as we go through the grades, it started to get less and less and less. But it it plateaued in terms of the, the student data. And it started to climb again at the end. 
and we realized the correlation between kindergarten <laughs> and here by doing this in the mirror folks is the element of student choice kids get choice in when they're five years old and kids get choice when they're 15 you know with electives in high school and that and we found that to be incredibly powerful uh data you know, you, t you talk about the whole the whole grading thing and taking risks. You know, we tell teachers to do the same thing. And when it, you know, with data, it's kind of the same, you know, how, how do you, how, they don't always feel the grace to take that risk. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there's, there's something about project-based learning. And I did Project Lead the Way for, for three years from K through, through fifth grade. And, um, uh, you know, learned a ton about who excelled, you know, the different types of students that, that STEM project-based learning in this case tapped into, uh, you know, the, the kids that, that had difficulty in, in regular ed classes excelled in, in some of these project-based classes because their thinking fit uh, exactly. And then some kids who excelled in the regular ed classroom had difficulty thinking out of the box. Um, you know, it was a real challenge for them. Um, but, you know, it reminds me of, of that. I think it was one of the last things you said in your, your what was it, 2016 TED Talk? Yeah. Uh, it Where you said, uh, basically, we got to stop making kids conform to our world. And we've, we've got to embrace and conform to theirs, embrace yeah. theirs. You know, and, that's, that, that year... Uh, was a huge game changer for me. Um, shameless promotion. I was awarded the Canadian Prime Minister's Award, and they only give out 10 of those nationally. So to, to receive that as an educator and to be nominated by my colleagues was was huge and humbling. Yeah, quite an honor. But, but the success from that year isn't that accolade. It's I had a, a grade 8 student with autism, uh, didn't want to do anything at school, obviously. Well, that's not entirely true. Didn't only wanted to do what that student wanted to do, you know. And I would look at old report cards and he, he would be hammered for not demonstrating initiative. So initiative is an actual skill that we, we report on on our report cards. And I remember thinking to myself, that's not initiative. That's compliance. He's not doing what you want him to do. But look, he's always doing what he wants to do and he's always learning. So let's let's redefine your definition of initiative. And his parents requested a meeting that year and they said, OK, we have a progressive educator, techie guy. We have a principal who's on board to try new things. Can you just like throw out the traditional school system for our child? He's going to high school next year and we're afraid he's going to fall through the cracks and become another number. He's coming from, a, you know, an elementary school of 300 going to a high school of 2000. And we're afraid that the guidance office isn't going to be able to you know, provide the supports he needs. Is there something we can fix? Fix. How can we make him an independent learner in in grade eight? You know, you, you focus on his weaknesses at school but he's going to pursue his strengths in life. You know, mm -hmm. he's outsmarted you folks. He doesn't like going to French class. That's why he hits people because he knows he's going to send them home. He's working. He's playing a better game of school than your, your A student sort of down the hall. And I realized then, oh, because dad said to me, you know, you keep giving him C's and D's on his report card, but he's got a million pieces of Lego and I can pull one at random and he can tell me what kid it goes to. So like you're telling me he's not smart and what I see at home is brilliance. There's a disconnect here. And that Lego piece blew my mind. Minecraft was huge in 2016 still, right? Yeah. Today, 
I thought, let's try this. I got him an iPad. I got him the Minecraft Pocket Edition, and he would not put the thing down to the point where we wrote Minecraft uh, as a tool for learning into his IEP. Do you call it IEP where you're from? Individual education? Yep, yep. So we wrote Minecraft into that IEP, and that was like huge because up to this point, all the IEPs for assistive technology were like, Dragon naturally speaking, or you know, Google read and write, or whatever. Nobody had ever thought or done Minecraft in my school community, and it became his entire po portfolio of learning. We just stepped back and thought, okay, if one Minecraft block is a cubic meter, we can now do all of his patterning in Minecraft world. We can do all of his surface area and volume in the Minecraft world. He can create habitats that he's studying in geography. He can create historical settings that he's learning about in history class, and he can do them all to scale using real world elements that are built into the game. Now, having just come out of grade six, where they do STEM circuits here in, in Ontario, redstone is an element in Minecraft that you mine, that you have to accrue in order to use to create electricity and electric circuits. But there isn't like an infinite amount of it you have to find it so that became our financial literacy component is using redstone as a currency it, it just blew my mind the possibilities and his parents were, it was it was a, a game game changing year for me in terms of pedagogy assessment evaluation student voice student engagement student empowerment to the point where all of a sudden he's doing things in Minecraft we didn't ask him to do. And all of a sudden now I get to put excellent and E beside initiative on his report card and send him to high school with that IEP document that says the iPad and Minecraft are going to stay with him. And the high school supported it and he was able to use the Minecraft on his exams and the rest is history. It was a tremendous, tremendous success story and kudos to his parents for, for coming to us. Kudos to my administrator for going, yeah, you know what? Where, where, like, where's the school going to come in and say, we can't do this? Of course we're going to do this for this child. So I have honestly two minutes of playing time of the game Minecraft to my name, but I was able to write a second book, Blockbreaker, about the entire experience right. and the projects that, that he was able to, to do. So huge. I don't know how yeah. we got into that, but I love telling that story because it was a tremendous but success. It's because it's worth telling and, and kudos <laughs> to a lot of people in that. I mean, you, you started the ball rolling, uh, but like you said, a lot of people were flexible and a lot of people kind of dropped what was, you know, hey, we've got to work to where this student is. And you met that student. You truly met that student where they were. And we went from him hitting to avoid French class to maybe you could bring your iPad to French class and maybe you could build um, a, a community and on the signs in Minecraft, you're just going to write the words en français. Well, the French teacher is over the moon because she went from, I can't even write a report card because he doesn't come to my French class to he's writing French in Minecraft on I mean, signs. I just get this, this, picture of this giant locked door that has been un unlocked and the gates open for this student and what will be so interesting if you're able to do it is to find out you know like make a block break or two to find out where this kiddo ends up because truly i think you know the impact you and the, the other uh, stakeholders that that you mentioned 
I mean, that, that really changed that kiddo's life. It, which brings me to that, that light bulb. I mean, just, he, just seeing you talk and, and hearing you talk about that, the light bulb comes on for you when you're talking about kids like that. And so that's clearly what something that drives you and drives what you do. A thousand percent. I think, I think that, you know, that there's students that are going to go to higher ed and they're going to need our support along the way. But in theory, in truthfully, they don't, they know the game of school. They know what they need to do to get to the end. They know in what, in, in certain classes that, I, okay, I just have to regurgitate what said teacher said so I can get 95 so I can go on to the next. Whereas uh, students like, his name was Connell, students like Connell, they don't get that similar experience. They don't know how to play the game of school. And number two, the system tells them at a very early age that there's something wrong with them, quote unquote, that they learn differently from other folks. And then we try and support and encourage them and say, yeah, but everybody learns a little bit differently. Well, these students are like, okay, but how come I have to go to the resource center, you know, 45 minutes a day when the other students don't? And I, I just made it a mission in my class, my actual homeroom classroom, that you don't need to go to guidance because we're going to create guidance in the corner of the room. And everybody is going to need guidance in this classroom at some point in time and try to just make it as inclusive as as possible number one and number two what i found was on the topic of blocks like block-based coding very 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 challenging for my quote-unquote gifted identified gifted students what i appreciated about that is they're used to getting 90s they're used to getting things correct they're used to getting mm -hmm. answers they're comfortable with putting their hand up. They want the teacher to call on them. And then we, then I plunk them into an open-ended inquiry project environment, something like Scratch, where all of a sudden it's not binary. And that's my joke. It's not right or wrong. You're creating content now. And that throws them for a loop because they are so accustomed to providing right answers and then getting a sticker. And it's not going to happen in this experience. I want you to now feel failure if you will i want you to feel what it the experience of something not working properly and you're going to feel that learning to code it's not going to work the way you think it's going to work and we're going to explore real trial and error and making observations and making predictions and changing variables and really demonstrate a sense of mastery versus a sense of correct Math is that subject area, you know, traditionally scored based on a quantity of correct answers. Yet the people that invented Scratch come from MIT Media Lab, and they were math professors trying to promote kinesthetic play using computer <laughs> science. So <laughs> well, yeah. I find it, it does, it does, you know, level the playing field, so to speak. I'll just very, very quickly for those that yeah. are listening focus on say probability i could have a gifted student create in a spinner app with seven outcomes that's actually going to calculate experimental probability of performing the experiment say 10 times and then i might have another student with an iep who's on some accommodations or modifications who might build a simple coin flipper but at the end of the day they both built an app that demonstrates a game of chance and who am I to say just because your game only had two outcomes, it's a 65 versus her, her, his or her game that had six outcomes? No, you both 
demonstrated mastery of probability and you were met where you needed to be met. Yes. The issue, the sticking point is at the end of the day, I still have to quantify these two experiences. And if you've got, you know, the family that's used to getting A's and the family that's used to getting D's, now everybody's getting A's. It shows just how trivial that letter grade actually is. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I could go on all day for that. You just explain. <laughs> well, you touched on something there that was kind of my next question. In your, when you're talking in your, your TED Talk about the, the different hacks and you're talking about one of them was embracing failure. And when I was in the classroom, I found myself leaning on that a lot because it was, I came to the, I came to education after 10 years in graphic design and advertising. And so I had some, some life experience outside the classroom. And so I, I kind of, there's that, there you go. I came to them wanting with a, a sense of talking to them about failure and that failure is part of the learning process. Uh, because I think during, during my time in education, a lot of times I felt like, you know, perfection was the, was the measuring stick. And just tell me, I mean, so that you, it seems like that's what you're hitting on there with, with the embracing failure is, is that it's not only something that hits you in life, yeah, you know, trial and error. It's part of the learning process, and I tried to I tried to teach kids that that it was not a a, a mistake or a failure. Air quotes failure was not necessarily a uh, a death sentence, but it was actually could be the springboard to to something else. And you know, you you talked in the you talk about. Angry Birds, you know, being the what was it, the fifty second? Yeah, like forty seven app Rovio ever built. Yeah. They spent you know, six years in mom's garage building apps that didn't go anywhere. How critical yeah. though is is that that failure piece of working with kids on not saying failure's great, because I think being a failure is has gotten the the mistakes or failing at something has gotten a a bad rap if that's a does that make sense absolutely um, school is all about finding correct answers and and that's it's about finding correct answers i never felt like i had room for a mistake when i was in school and and i yeah i started out with third graders and i'm trying to teach these third graders who in 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 texas they that's the first year they start taking standardized tests and they're terrified, yeah, you know, and my first thing was, was to tell them, you know, life was going to go on, <laughs> you know, don't let this test that don't let the test be more scary than it is. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know what, whether you pass or fail, the sun will come up the next day. That's right. And you know, I like to tell our students, we don't judge Sidney Crosby's ability to play hockey by the results of one period or even just one game. So take a deep breath and go at it. One of the best jobs I had, but my most recent position, I was a rotary math and phys ed teacher. So I had hundred and about 120 13-year-olds, grade 7 and grade 8. And I, my, I taught them all gym and I taught them all math. 
And I remember sitting in, we are doing basketball. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't put, put all my students on the foul line and grade them based on how many shots they could get out of 10 because every single one of them is going to fail. I'm teaching them how to make a foul shot. And it's very procedural and it's a process just like coding. So then why in math class am I giving kids the same, you know, find the area of these 10 circles and scoring it based on how many they got right? In theory, those two things are almost identical. But yet in gym class, we don't do that at all. And then I got thinking about I was giving bonus points to kids who came to class prepared because that's something I was taught. I'm like, I don't give kids bonus points in math if they show up with a protractor set. What is going on here? Where's the disconnect? And so I started to teach math through a phys ed lens. Everything is a, everything is a process. Everything is a procedure. And we're going to get there and we're going to play and it's teamwork and we're going to have fun and it's collaborative and there is no right or wrong. We have to stop looking at student work as if it's right or wrong and start looking at. Well, I, I mean, we could go on about that because I, I think it's that's applicable for especially for students, but for all of us about making mistakes. Um, and, you know, and when we ease up on ourselves, you you work better. Yeah. You work better when you don't feel like this is my one shot. You know, I appreciate you bringing that up in, in your talk and in and in the things you do, because my guess is, you know, that's a message you communicate quite clearly to when you're doing your talks and in your in your work with students. I mean, uh, you talked about elementary kids and, and about kindergarten in particular. I'm blown away at what kindergarten and pre-K kids can do with things like project based learning and blended learning uh, yeah. because they don't they don't have the 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 confines on them. You know, they don't know. They don't know that they're not supposed to to be free to yep. free thinkers. And yep. uh, I had a former administrator who said, why do we even bother with grades in primary like K through three? He said. You know, if we never told a third grader they're a D student in math, maybe they'll enjoy math. There's everybody's thoughts on that. We all had this, you know, debate about where grades are and, and this and that. But it's just so simple and nature yeah. so powerful at the same time that if, if you never tell a student they're a D in math, maybe they won't hate math. And that's half the battle, right? Half the battle is this conceived the notion of what people believe or what kids believe or even parents, too, who... Yeah, I was never good at math. Okay, well, you're spreading math anxiety. Don't do that. Well, uh, you know, I think we, you called hacking the classroom was was your talk, and I think you're you're hacking the uh, kindergarten classroom a lot these days. But I guess we keep hacking away at it until uh, we get that that notion one day at a time. One one uh, day at a time. Admittedly, you know, the hour of code uh, movement for me and how hot computer science is right now. That's my foot in the door. But what I'm really passionate about is the assessment and evaluation reform. So when I get asked by districts to come and do some computer science consulting, I'm all over it. But be forewarned, we are going to have very lengthy conversations about grades and what it means to fail. Because computer science content is one thing, but the way we currently assess and evaluate at school doesn't fit the mold of what computer science and project-based learning uh, actually is I, I, people want to pick on higher ed as the reason for grades i interviewed to go to university in the 90s granted my grades got me the interview but the interview got me into the into the school uh if i had to write an exam in computer science it was open book i wasn't expected to memorize syntax uh, i was expected to 
create solutions to authentic problems. And that was my higher ed experience. Right. It was open book and project-based learning. And that's 25 years ago. And now, yet like you said, it's to say it's hot is, is an understatement. And so, you know, I can't, uh, I can't wait for my copy of your book, you know, the, your latest book, which is awesome. when, Thank when passion meets project comes in, uh, you know, cause that kind of tells your story. That one. Yeah. So Codebreaker, my first book came out in 2017 Codebreaker as a means to support what I was doing. I was being pulled in a right. million different directions out of my classroom, Microsoft, Ontario ministry, faculty event. I thought, okay, there's clearly an opportunity here. People want to know what I've been doing. And, and everybody kept saying to me, it takes so long to write curriculum, like five, maybe 10 years to write a curriculum document. We don't have that time. Can you create a resource that highlights how you do it in every subject area, including second grade health? You know, how is it being brought in and not sort of a standalone subject? And so that's how Codebreaker, the book uh, came to be and then block breaker the follow-up about minecraft for sure the latest one when passion meets project is uh more of a timeless story from start to finish it's it's what happened to me in high school uh, that a uh, result of what a teacher made um decision a teacher made to take a chance on me uh, that led me into computer science that led me to having this conversation with you and the reason i'm saying that is just you reached out to me as a result of the work that we've done and That's it all right. goes back to, to, in my humble opinion, we're all going to find our own path anyway. But Mrs. Boudreaux helped me, pushed me in the right direction sooner than later. I could have, you know, with 12 kids in grade 12, three of them are getting in trouble with the law. Three of them are going to higher ed and three of them are just, you know what I mean? Like I could have went anywhere in that small cohort and she pushed me sort of in that right direction. And it reminds me that I tell teachers, you know, you're not just the math teacher. You're not just the phys ed teacher. You're not just the French teacher. You can be the teacher just like Mrs. Boudreaux that changed the world for little Brian Aspinall. Yeah. You know, and, and Joe, Joe says that as well. Joe you know? says that as well. Isn't that what he time. said, yeah, he says, you're not just. That's right. Uh, you know, so I think it's important to remember that. Um so I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah. Feedback for students. What's your thoughts on that? What What is it and what should it be? That's a challenging one. So as a computer science person, I've also been an app developer. When we talk about the narrative of failure, I wrote, I, I created a few apps. I don't own them anymore. They've all been acquired by businesses across North America. But I built a feedback tool called EdMetal. And Metal was M-E-T-T-L-E. And Metal being the play on words of metal, like receiving a badge. Right. So it was a feedback system where I would, we collectively as a class would choose the skills we're working on for the day or the week. Let's say we're working on uh, initiative now and it changed my anchor charts. It changed my learning goals that used to say, you know, today we're going to learn how to find the area of a circle. No, today we're going to learn how to demonstrate initiative period. And then the content was find the area of a circle. But we're always focusing on that quote unquote soft skill first. We're, we're, we're definitely going to do the content, but we're having conversations about initiative at the forefront. And so I created this app called Edmetal. It doesn't exist anymore. It's been taken down by the person that, that bought it. Um, 
it it was a place for kids to highlight mm-hmm. each other. So if we're having conversations in a school about initiative, and then I have a seventh grader who's like, oh, I just saw my friend demonstrate initiative, they could award them a medal, M-E-T-T-L-E. And in theory, the idea was that the kids were almost going to write their own report card. They're the ones that see what's going on. I'm the one at the front of the room that thinks I see what's going on. But the kids know. So why can't they talk about self-regulation on their lunch hour and give somebody else a badge if they see somebody demonstrating self-regulation on their lunch hour when I'm in the staff room or somewhere else? You know, those are the real authentic collaborative experiences that that our kids have. Long story short, that app I thought was going to be huge. It was the worst app of the four that I developed. It had zero traction. I don't know if it was too soon. It was about eight years ago. Class Dojo had just started at the time, too. So I thought, okay. I'm older version of Class Dojo. It's Class Dojo for middle school. It tanked. It absolutely tanked. I poured my heart and soul into that app, and, and it didn't go anywhere. And to this day, I don't. I don't know why, but on the conversation of, of failure, that was a fail. By definition, that, that was a fail. I had an app, you know, like Angry Birds prior that, that didn't go anywhere. So with regards to your, your question about student feedback, rubrics, oh boy. When we check sections of a rubric, we are already quantifying work. And I don't understand that side of things because where I live in Ontario, we have rubrics that are one, two, three, four. And if a kid okay. consistently four, what number in the report card? Because at the end of the day, I have to put a number between 80 and 100 on the report card. What number? 92, 81, 97? You got fours all year long, and somehow I have to turn that into a numerical value out of 100. That's just the nature of the system that we have here. And it, nobody under, I've never understood it, to be quite frank. Um, but sometimes I think rubrics, we often put a lot of next steps, and it tells kids what what they didn't do right. Um, Melissa Dean, one of our authors of Unravel School, really blew my mind about the concept of assessment and evaluation. She does like single point rubrics, but it tells the kid what they did well, what they did right, and where to then sort of go with it rather than what they did wrong and what needs to be fixed. How to build on what they've done right. Yeah, and just some simple word choice and looking at it i think back to the student i had with autism just we're doing the same thing but we're just doing well what's working and and then you know where to go we always we always want to focus on students weaknesses at school which of course we're trying to make well-rounded individuals we're always pushing them to improve in areas that maybe they're not even interested in and if we focus on the weaknesses what are they focusing on you know, that's and, then great, we, and then we wonder how they can't embrace failure. <laughs> that is an absolutely 100% great point. Yep. Yep. I find that, you know, if I would let student work pile up, say, a week or two, particularly in math, I wouldn't even bother grading it anymore because I read an article in university that talked about humans by nature, if they do something and no one corrects them. As time goes on, the brain just assumes that it was right. And so after two weeks, I'm not going to give these kids this work back and say, you got to go fix your mistakes. No, like it's, it's real time feedback. And typically you've got to nip those misconceptions because you're, you're exactly right. I remember in grad school watching this video and they were talking to, to people that, that had just graduated from Harvard 
very mm-hmm. intelligent people, and they asked them to explain how the seasons change. And every single one of them, Brian, was wrong. <laughs> but but it, what it taught is that when they went back to something that, you know, in the United States is taught third to fifth grade, it's not really taught again. And if that misconception is not taken care of right then, how far it can go. Isn't that wild? Yeah, exactly. That was, it blew me away. And it really, it really just uh, made that point come alive. So you've written, I think I'm, I'm short about six <laughs> books. And uh, you've written six books plus some children's books, right? I've got, I've written four quote unquote adult teacher books, if you will. Uh, and I'm the co-author on two kids books. Okay. So I had it right. Six. Oh yeah. Six total. Of course. Yes. Yes. The, the kid books came to be filling, uh, filling a void. We're trying to do all this work with computational thinking in our elementary school. And I just couldn't find these read alouds. I couldn't find anything. Um, so they came to be to, you know, model the process of problem solving, model the process of design thinking, model the process of computational thinking by using these read alouds because there are read alouds and they're think alouds, but they also come with lesson plans, you know, that teachers can do right away. So you've got the read aloud and now you've got the content. And the reason that those books came to life is because I, again, doing all this professional development work I love and I love providing these books to teachers to read, but now we're able to provide sort of, artifacts that um our younger grades can actually do the very next day you said a keyword there computational thinking versus <laughs> in addition to mathematical thinking yep uh there's a difference there's a difference there's a lot of correlations giant venn diagram there's a lot of overlap um in my brain Computational thinking is, and I know that online you can Google it and people will tell you it's this step-by-step thing that you follow. And it's, I think that it's a little bit more vague than that. I think it's understanding how our technology works, understanding how to use it to make our life better, understanding how to use it to solve authentic problems and understanding how to use it to be more efficient in our day-to-day tasks is ultimately the goal, I think, of, of computational thinking. And it's here to stay. It's not really a new buzzword by any means. It's been around for decades. Right. Um, but as as you know, as we know, we all know, we, five years ago it was I can't wait to be a one to one classroom. And now <laughs> in most parts we're like three to one in some places. You know, we still have some work to do there. But the, the truth is that there hardly are classrooms left, at least in North America, that don't have a set of iPads. You know, I appreciate the death of the higher ed lecture as a result of a pandemic. <laughs> I'll leave it as that. <laughs> uh, having kids that, that just finished, um, I, I sat there and I, as they're sitting on the couch, you know, they're home, mm-hmm. you know, from college, but they're still having to listen to the lectures, you know, they haven't died completely, but it sure has radically changed the college lecture. For sure. You know, I had a really progressive superintendent, uh, in 2007, in 2007, we were one-to-one iPads at my school. I couldn't, like, my, my district rather, huge project. 
and they were dropped in the seventh graders hands and the idea was that ipad is going to follow you through 12th grade as long as you stay in our school district so a kid now is handed a device a school provided device in seventh grade that they get to use for the next five years and if the life cycle of an ipad is only two or three they ipads get replaced anyway right, so in right. year two in year two of the project those students are now in eighth grade and the new crop of sevens got ipads so here i am teaching rotary math and phys ed with one-to-one ipads completely across grade seven and grade eight that's not the important part of the story the important part of the story is my high schools still have an exam policy our district still has an exam policy it was written you know at the beginning of time in terms of education and kudos to my superintendent that stood up in front of the principal's council meeting and said to the high school principals, I'm not asking you to ask your staff to change the exams. That's a little bit too disruptive. But I'm telling you right now that I just spent $200 million on iPads and those iPads will be used in high school on those exams. End of story. Just left it there. Well, we're all looking around going, he just crushed the knowledge and understanding part of, uh, of exams. He just crushed memorization, completely crushed it. Because if you can Google the answer, the kids are Googling the answer on the exam. That's also showing how arbitrary the grades in the exam, you know, actually are. Huge. Holy smoke. 15 years ago, we were doing that. And that really helped set me on my path. But it really, again, it really got us all thinking. We, we had... Uh, ninth grade colleagues that were doing gradeless classrooms now in high school and their their argument was well my kids aren't going to university next year they have four more years so i can get away with no grades in grade nine and it just continued to grow and grow and grow and snow you know the snowball right it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger but kudos to that superintendent uh to make that move where no i'm not asking you i'm not telling you to stop doing exams what i'm telling you is that's a board provided device that's going to be right beside that kid during the exam <laughs> nah, you know, changes are coming. Changes yep. are coming. So, you know, you know, just once again, I appreciate the work you and your the the members of your company are doing because it's it's making a difference. I know there's probably some days, just like with all of us, you come home and you go, Am I making a difference? But but I be, I believe you are. And uh kudos to you for that. If a if a group district or organization wants to reach out you to you and Codebreaker Inc. to to speak to their students or work with their staff, how do they do that? Yeah, you know what? Simple email to me, simple email to our Codebreaker. So codebreakeredu.com is the consulting publishing website. Uh, brianaspinall.com is my blog. MrAspinall.com is sort of my CV resume and my email address. Right. I'm an open book. You can you can Google me till you're blue in the face if you want. There's a lot of content out there, but shoot us an email. Um, we do work with a few speakers bureaus, but we're not exclusive to anybody. If anybody just wants us to come out and do some professional learning of all grades, uh, K K through 12. So if I can do one more little shameless plug, go <laughs> right ahead. March 12th, 2020, standing with Joe Sanfilippo, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and they said, you need to go home. That was the day my whole world unfolded in front of my eyes. I had already resigned from my elementary classroom and was pursuing consulting full time. I was still teaching higher ed, but as we know, higher ed does not pay the bills, especially if you have one or two courses. It is not going to carry your mortgage. 
So March, Friday, Friday, March 13th, my world stopped. I saw a year of consulting and speaking gigs go completely out the window overnight and thought, what the heck are we going to do? My wife's also an educator and she was transitioning at the time uh, to Codebreaker to come, come across and do the work that she does. She's a science teacher. March 14th, I got out of bed, excited. And I thought, you know what? This is an opportunity. I can't look at this as failure. Can't look at this as what are we going to do? But look at it as for the foreseeable future, everybody is at home. And I have spent the last five or so years traveling across North America, working with educators who all have stories to tell. So March 14th, 2020 was the big pivot of Codebreaker, the brand itself, moving not just in consulting, but into the publishing space. I decided that day that I've been through this process. I've published books. I published two books with another publisher, and I understand how this process works. And I've met a lot of amazing educators out there who have amazing stories to tell. Maybe this pivot is amplifying my social media following to tell the stories that need to be heard, because these people are doing what I'm doing just in their own tiny little community. But everybody needs to know. So on March 14th, I sent out an email to about 25 teachers and superintendents that I'd met over the years and said, you need to tell your story. And now is the time to do it. And wouldn't you know, we published 20 something books during lockdown. Um, it wow. was amazing. amazing. And we're still going full speed ahead. It was an incredible pivot. Um, talk about, Editing a book written by editing 20 books written by 20 different superintendents is the best professional development I could have ever asked for <laughs> while being grounded at home during lockdown. That is the truth. Yeah, you might have been the busiest guy during the lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes the greatest PD is the teacher down the hall. And I just reached out to them and said, it's your turn. Let's put a book together. Let's do this. So yeah. And who doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, who doesn't want to get that email that says, you know what? I should share my district's journey because that superintendent now gets to highlight their staff and students in their community. And that's best for everybody wins when you start doing it under that model. So I like to say none of our books are, based on any kind of research other than 30 years of education on the ground in someone's career. That's the research they're backed by, their stories. Most, most valuable there is right yeah. there. Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you have time to do some lightning round questions. I always end with the lightning round questions. Uh, are sure, you up go. for it? Are you up for it? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Now you feel free, feel free to to pass. I may ask for explanation, but you know most people do not pass. But what's your hidden talent, Brian? What Espinal? is my hidden, uh, my hidden talent? What is my hidden? I can't say coding, right? What is my hidden talent? No, that's not uh, so hidden. Uh, smoking meat, smoking meat. Okay, smoking meat. Okay. Yeah, I did beef turkey yesterday. Oh, nice. Okay, you need to put more more pictures of that out on uh, on Twitter and uh, YouTube. So give give <laughs> us a, a video is coming live tomorrow of the beef jerky. Okay, yes. okay, all right, good deal. <laughs> Cake or pie? Pie. Any kind? Any particular kind? Uh, less sweet. 
<laughs> Less sweet. I'm not. A, okay. I'm not a sweet person. I, I would have picked option C, which is chips. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite board game? Monopoly. I play it in real life. Nice. Uh, what never fails to make you laugh? Uh, Impractical Jokers, the TV show. What is one thing you wished you enjoyed more? Learning to play the guitar. You're good at this. All right. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this next one, but we'll see. Cannonball in the pool or dip your toe in first? Hands down, cannonball. I live on the lake, right off the dock, right out back here. <laughs> okay. YouTube on that one, too. YouTube <laughs> on that one, too. Uh, beg forgiveness or ask permission? Beg forgiveness every time. That's the, uh, that's the popular answer on that one. <laughs> what are the three least likely words someone would use to describe you? Three... Least, least likely. likely. I, I've recently been called privileged, and that's a whole nother podcast conversation. I recognize as I, that I present as a, a straight white male, and I know what that carries. But uh, that, that also doesn't define the work that we've done and how hard we've worked and where we've come from. Um, nothing was handed to me on a silver platter, if you will. Okay. So we'll go with privileged. Um, what do you think is the key to living a good life? Stop trading. Uh, stop trading time for money. Um, time is your most valuable currency. Um, this and it's limited. Man, that's a good answer. I'll give you Thanks. ten points. I'll give you ten points on that. <laughs> Who inspires you? Okay, quite a few people. Predominantly musicians. Um, I am currently inspired by the late, great Chris Cornell. Um, I'm also inspired by some bizarre ones. Like I'll say Kid Rock and Kid Rock fan or not. Uh, he's just there's a work ethic to him. For, put his political garbage and all that other stuff aside. He grew up like Eminem in Detroit and I live at the Windsor mm -hmm. Detroit border. And so watching those two be success stories in my backyard inspires me to want to continue to push and, and find success stories in my life and education. The Aspinalls are having a party and you've divvied out. People are going to bring stuff and you've assigned dessert to somebody. What's the lamest dessert someone could bring and try to pass off as a dessert. Oh, like store-bought butter tarts. That's what's a butter. What's a butter tart? I don't know. Uh, what a butter tart. Oh my God. It's probably, it's probably, okay. I'll say ketchup. Chips. Well, I'm not bringing it to your party. That's for sure. <laughs> they're, they're about yay big. They're like single serving pies. It's got like a, like a crust underneath and it's like okay. raisin pecan in the middle, butter tarts. Maybe it's a Canadian thing. Maybe it is. Just don't bring it. Don't bring it. I think I think well, we have something similar. That's like I don't know. That's like buying somebody a gift card for their birthday. Like you know, you're almost offensive now. It's store bought. Come on. <laughs> okay, I got gotcha. you. What movie do you enjoy quoting the most? Oh boy, I enjoy quoting two. Almost famous, Kate Hudson came out about 2000, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show of 1975. Man, definitive, definitive. 
<laughs> what has been your favorite age so far? 40. That was just last year, right? I'm still 40. <laughs> All right. So, so the best is uh, you're living the best life right now. Living the best life uh, coming out of a pandemic, uh, you know, consulting opportunities are, are coming back. It feels great to be outside. It feels great to work with students not wearing masks, feeling in a room full of people and not staring at black screens. Yeah, this 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 is the year. Okay, great. Oh, man. what What is one thing you regret spending money on? But what is worth, what item is worth spending more money on? <laughs> My drone. Uh, <laughs> as a amateur wannabe YouTuber, uh, my third drone actually arrived yesterday for some footage for tomorrow's video. The first drone, I crashed into a tree on first flight. I then asked for forgiveness and begged my wife to buy a second drone, which I proceeded to crash into a tree on its second flight. And as of yesterday, I said, I can only recycle drone footage with snow so much. We're into like the plants are coming up now. Can I get a third drone? So I uh, regret having to buy the same camera drone because I'm almost two grand invested into a $500 drone, three times plus tax. But it's also a unique item that I would spend more money on to have the ones that, like, follow you. My drone doesn't do that. So you can, like, get in the car and it'll, like, hover and, and follow you driving. I have to manually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I'd, I love the fact that you rolled the same item to answer both questions. <laughs> oh, have you already made – I'm going back to your, your cannonball question answer and then – uh in your meat smoking. Have you already made the meat smoking video? It's made. It's when we get off this call, I'm giving it a once over watch and I'm going to upload it overnight. It'll be live tomorrow morning, six o'clock Eastern standard. All right. So everybody be look, looking for that one. And then when you make the cannonball video, I just, <laughs> I just ask for a shout out. That's all I ask. Okay. Done. <laughs> oh, Brian Espinall. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you are a, a great guy and you are doing some great work. And I would just say if, uh, if, if 40 is the best year so far, just keep it up and keep doing what you're doing. Cause, uh, uh, it's working and you're making a difference and, and it's appreciated. No, I, I, I really, 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 really appreciate it with not doing a big deep dive on mental health, uh, I did hit rock bottom around 2017 and it's been a journey to get to where we are now. So celebrating health and happiness at 40 is the best I've ever felt in my life. I've been to the gym five days a week uh, since 2022 started. So can only go up, can only go up from here. I hope that somebody else is inspired by that and makes changes that need to be changed. Well, you've been on the DL and uh, maybe that's, this is the, the highlight of the year so far. There you go. <laughs> and I'll see everybody in Texas because I have yeah. to go to, uh, what's his name? Franklin Smokehouse. I got to go. Never been to Franklin's. I just no? went to, uh, I just went to Good Bar, Good Company Barbecue in Houston. And uh, yeah, you, nice. you got to, this is the real stuff's down here. So yeah, yeah, I've heard. 
Well, I was supposed to be in Houston, but apparently COVID put a damper on that. So, well, we hope <laughs> we need to get you back here. Love to. Well, Brian, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the On the DL podcast, the official podcast of Temple ISD Digital Learning. Now, we don't want you to miss an episode, so you can prevent this by subscribing in whichever podcast player you're listening to. This way, you will be notified whenever a new episode drops. Another shout out and thank you to Dr. Joe Sanfilippo for being on the program. Another reminder is you can purchase his books, any of the three, all three, or the newest one, Lead From Where You Are, by going to J, the letter J, Sanfilippo, that's with two Ps, dot com, jsanfilippo.com, or you can also purchase them at amazon.com. Until next time, you've been on the DL.